Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Brett Lidbury about ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. But first up, here's the news about a potential cure for ME. CFS drug? The small drug company Cortine is trialling a new treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, based on a hypothesis that all ME symptoms come through a particular stress pathway. A receptor called CRF2 triggers neurons to release serotonin. Cortine scientists suggest that the excess secretion of serotonin in response to even small amounts of stress is the root cause, through various pathways, of the many different ME symptoms. Kind of the opposite of how we used to think clinical depression was caused by a shortage of serotonin. We now know clinical depression is not serotonin deficiency, but we're still learning about the causes. Cortine scientists think myalgic encephalomyelitis works like this. Stress releases corticotrophic releasing factor CRF in the RAFE nuclei in the brainstem, which modulates serotonin in the limbic system. The limbic system deals with emotions, memories and arousal or stress. Low stress causes low levels of CRF which acts on CRF1 receptors to inhibit production of serotonin. High levels of stress cause secretion of high levels of CRF, which acts on CRF2 receptors to increase serotonin. In MECFS, Cortine scientists suggest that CRF2 receptors have become stuck on the surfaces of the serotonin-releasing neurons when the receptors should be inside. Now, low stress increases serotonin instead of inhibiting it. They think that their CT38 drug will signal the body to move the CRF2 receptors back inside the cells where they won't encounter so much CRF from stress, causing them to secrete less serotonin, eliminating people's symptoms altogether. In Cortine's experiments with rats, they found that overstimulating the CRF2 receptor in healthy rats induced MECFS-like symptoms. This is the first MECFS model in a rat. When they down-regulated the CRF2 receptor, the MECFS-like symptoms went away in the rats. In all previous attempts to treat ME symptoms, the drugs have been repurposed from those already on the market for other conditions. Cortine wanted to trial a drug never used in humans before, specifically aimed at what they believe is the cause of ME. 
This means it's been a much more expensive and longer path to qualify the drug for human trials. Cortine's drug, a small protein called CT38, has been shown to be safe in a phase 1 trial in healthy human volunteers. It's intended to downregulate the receptor within hours, hopefully reversing the maladaption and restoring patients to a pre-MECFS state. The clinical trial will have a four-week pre-treatment period, a two-week treatment period, and a four-week post-treatment period. Both the pre- and post-treatment periods will start with a cardiopulmonary exercise test on a stationary bike. The trial will test three groups of six patients each, receiving either low, intermediate or high doses of the CT38 drug. There won't be a control group in this trial, but if the trial is successful, they will follow it with a placebo-controlled clinical trial and a trial to determine the minimally effective dose. The trial will assess exercise performance, functional ability using Fitbit measurements of activity, heart rate and sleep, cognitive function, using DANA mobile software testing, effects on vitals, a tilt test that makes people with ME-CFS sick, and patient-reported symptom scores. They're looking for people between 18 and 60 who match the Canadian guidelines for diagnosis of myalgic encephalomyelitis. Even if it works as a complete cure, it could be several years before it's approved for market. I'll include a link to the sign-up page in the show notes. Opt out, fail. This week marks the start of the My Health Record opt-out period. If you don't choose to opt out of the online health record system in the next three months, then the government will keep your medical health records for 130 years after you were born or 30 years after your death. The legislation is written in a similar way to the data retention laws and, in the same way, will allow local councils, the RSPCA and almost any enforcement organisation to access your private information without a warrant and without informing you. The legislation even allows the release of your private medical data to protect public revenue. The government has already been selling private health information in its care. People trying to opt out are finding that the online system has already failed due to poor planning of resources, just like the census website didn't work on the night and the NBN. So instead, they're being directed to a phone hotline which isn't answered for hours, just like the Centrelink phone lines. If you do get through, you may find your operator isn't able to help you because the systems are down. The My Health Record opt-out website contains a capture widget to prove you're a human that sends your private data back to Google, contradicting government promises that they will never allow access to third parties. Health insurance companies are already lobbying for access. People logged in have been warned that the security setting for My Health Records are switched off by default. The opt-out process requires you to put in your driver's license number when your Medicare number is enough to identify you to the government. My guess is that they ask for permission to use your driver's license number so that they can link 
their face recognition system derived from driver's licences into the MyGov system that MyHealthRecords is part of. The government has failed to explain which public revenue access to MyHealthRecords will protect or why councils and the RSPCA need your medical information. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Brett Libri is an associate professor with the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health in the Research School of Population Health in the Australian National University in Canberra. His background is primarily in experimental laboratory research, but in the last 10 years he's moved into computational research in silico. His current interest is myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, amongst other things. I met Brett at the screening of the movie Unrest by Jennifer Breyer of her confronting personal journey with severe ME and how people with the illness are treated around the world. I spoke to him by Skype and began by asking him, what is the current definition of ME-CFS? You could have an entire conversation on defining ME and or CFS right. or fibromyalgia. Myalgia, and I'm relatively new to the area, having, having started formally doing research from about 2011. So I had a couple of years before that thinking about things. And I more or less came in as a bit of an ingenue and um, just thought it was chronic fatigue. I mean, fine. But I've be, it's been made, or well, I've become aware, I should say, that uh, the definitions are, depending on who you talk to, very, very, very important. Um, so I suppose a long way around it is I'm aware that a lot of advocates and patient groups and families and patients themselves are very unhappy with CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, because it's more than that. So what they mean by that, it's not just about feeling tired all the time, of course, it's about all the other symptoms that go with it, including you know, some combination of immune, neurological, uh, mood, brain fogging, those sorts of things, yes. gut problems. You know, and, and pain, of course, which is a very prominent symptom. So there's so much more to it. And when you get the overlap, and in fact, I've seen a colleague publish something recently. If you actually look at ME, as it stands, chronic fatigue syndrome and, say, fibromyalgia, there's a bit of overlap between all of them. So my day-to-day definition of what we're working on, I call it ME-CFS. Now, simply to... I suppose, project a sense of neutrality. I see myself as a researcher. While I understand people's frustrations, I'm just trying not to really buy into that argument. And hopefully through the research, we'll you know, actually learn more about it. So I did, until relatively recently, describe it as CFSME, but um, was asked to actually swap them around. <laughs> so a lot of thinking goes into it, but unfortunately, and for good reason, there's not much agreement and oh, how to put this delicately, I mean, it can be a bit of a distraction. I mean, it's important, but I think for someone trying to understand it, we just need to keep our, our mind open. 
And in saying that, it is a physiological disease. It is something, there's something wrong with the way our body works. And the symptom manifestations, as I've already alluded to, broad ranging from gut, nerve, you know, right through muscle, the lot. So it is genuinely something with a, a very broad symptomatology. So that's a very long answer to your <laughs> very straightforward question. That's no, that, that that's very good. So yes, it's an illness with a big shopping list of possible symptoms that people can suffer from, and exertion-related intellectual or, or physical fatigue and exhaustion is uh, yes. only one of them. Absolutely, yeah. So it's a really interesting history, and um, yeah, it is. I suppose, normal to some degree when opportunities occur as a researcher, your, your fo- focus is entirely on molecules and chemicals and cells and the rest of it and the physiology and the tissues. But actually looking at the, uh, the history, I mean, it's fairly clear that, you know, it was happening long before the uh, CFS nomenclature was used. There was, um, of course, in the 1950s, the Royal Free Hospital outbreak and some other outbreaks one in the United States as well, and a number of others. It's even been called Icelandic disease because of a mysterious outbreak there. I believe it's also in New Zealand. It was called Tapa Nui flu. So it has a long history, but because it came in waves or outbreaks where people got very sick and then seemed to get better with time, I mean, maybe not everyone, but anyway, it sort of came and it was, and even today it's three to one or four to one female to male. You know, there was two, two misconceptions really, and that was a that it was due to an outbreak of, a, of an infectious agent, which still holds some some truth, but it, you can't say it's all about an infection. Like, you know, there's a, just like the cold's going around and, you know, something else goes around and people get sick, they get a post-viral syndrome. And, of course, the other thing that was, was very unfair and, and very off-putting was because of the, the ratio favouring women to men, it was sort of seen in some cases as a cases of hysteria, you know, and things like that. So for a long time, it's, it's been around, but it's, it's been dealt with in a way that, um, you know, some people have done some good work, but it's just generally just not coalesced. And there's been a few, I think, um, what you might call dead ends in thinking about it. So through all that history, of course, you get an emergence of a lot of confusion. <laughs> and today, one of the barriers we face, which reflects this to some degree, is there are internationally 20 different clinical criteria by which medical practitioners or physicians can use to actually assess and diagnose. I mean, you know, from a research perspective, it'd be really good if we all decided on one, you know, so we could get some consistency. The two most popular at the moment is probably the CDC criteria from 1994 and, and what was called the Canadian criteria, now the international criteria. And if you talk to proponents of either of these two consensus criteria, you know, they'll always have a criticism. This one's too broad, and basically under this criteria, everyone's got it. But under the, no, it's, yeah, so, so unfortunately, we just need to yeah, find a common language, I suppose, is part of it. And again, I think with the research, you know, if you can then, you know, eventually nail down some, some of the physiology or the biochemistry or whatever the, you know, the various lesion is uh, in our normal physiology, one, one could then probably get a name and, and a set of criteria which is something people can agree upon so uh, absolutely so there you go well yeah. that's one of the biggest problems is that there hasn't been 
a diagnostic test that people can take that says, yes, you've definitely got it or no, you definitely haven't. But that's one of those things that's changed in recent years. There's been people finding biomarkers, including you. Yes. Scientists must be very difficult to talk to and interview by the media because we're never never 100% sure about things. And it's just the way we've got to be. You've got to be a little a little circumspect. However, um, I'm glad you raised the biomarker. And I'll just start on this by saying that it's a fairly routine experience for all of us nowadays if you feel unwell or even if you just have a normal routine checkup. But you'll have a, a suite of blood tests done through um, pathology laboratories, either in a hospital or outside in a private practice, which is fantastic, you know, a, a wonderful area. However, what has been often and normally found is for people who come in with ME, CFS, who are clearly very sick, part of the problem is even, you know, with all the tests that they can do routinely, nothing comes back uh, as abnormal, in inverted commas, that is um, a marker, a normal blood marker, that stays within the range it should normally be seen in health. So from that point of view, um, a biomarker's been very, very elusive. Jumping ahead to um, uh, early 2017, we did publish a paper involving ourselves in Canberra, but also colleagues in Melbourne, David Decretz and Mark Edger. We were also involved with the Akita and others from Paranda Biosciences. It's all in the the publication. And together we published on the active and family of proteins, which a type of protein called a cytokine. So it's sort of a molecule in our body which tells tissues and cells what to do and when to do it. And I think, if my memory is correct, they, they were, I think, originally located or identified as a protein involved with uh, reproduction. But what's come to the fore is that these proteins are very what we call pleomorphic. So they, they've got lots and lots of functions. You know, they, they don't just work in reproductive context, but also in, in muscle, immune cells. And, and so from that point of view, it, it does, given the type of disease ME is and the broad range of symptoms, it does from that very, very basic and very macro point of view, suggest that it might be a good biomarker. So here comes the the bit where we've got to be the doubting Thomas, scientist, is that, yes, we have shown very clearly in our preliminary study that serum activin B, so there's activin A, activin B, and there's a binding protein called folostatin. And uh, my colleagues at the Hudson Institute in Melbourne, where Mark Hedger works and runs the team, we can see quite a clear and significant elevation of activin B in people who fulfilled the international criteria for a diagnosis of MECFS. Right, because from what I've been reading, a lot of the observations people are making are there seems to be inflammation and there seems to be a lot of activity in the immune system and things going wrong in the central nervous system and the brain. And yes. So can we link that to what's causing these biomarkers? In general, yes. I mean, inflammation is often an issue almost with any disease. Um, there's some inflammatory loss of balance. So... The way people are thinking of it now is with the neurological aspects, of course, you've got what's called the blood-brain barrier. So not everything can get in and out. But we've also got in our brains types of what are called macrophages, which live in the brain and can be prone to activation under certain conditions. I've seen no evidence for it myself, not to say that there isn't any, but basically to answer your question, yes, those sorts of things, that inflammatory process in some part of the body, if out of control or not controlled properly, could actually influence how the cells in the brain respond. And, of course, then, if it's an abnormal response impact or function, you know, 
that of course involves a brain as you as you suggest and then with what triggers people to get into me or cfs it seems to be that it's not the same for everybody that some people get exposed maybe to viruses or maybe to toxins in the environment or we're just not really sure yes I think it's better than speculation, but the, the sense among the experts, people that really know the area, I work closely as a clinical colleague with Don Lewis, who runs a clinic in East Melbourne in Donvale, and he's been looking at patients for a long time uh, with MECFS, and his view is that it's something like an infection, heavy metal contamination, undue stress, you know, something that maybe comes from more to do with cortisol or stress responses. I alluded to earlier that the viral outbreaks, I think, yeah, for some people, in contact with a, a virus and viral persistence does explain it, whereas heavy metals with others. And in fact, some of the early reports, when people had a bit of an idea that they were dealing with a, a syndrome or a disease, there was often talk about patients who would come in and say, look, I had a cold last year, which I'd normally recover from, but this time I just didn't recover. Mm. <laughs> you know, I got the infection, I'd normally get better, but this time I just felt sick you know, basically forevermore after that infection. So it's like a cold or, a, you know, some sort of respiratory type infection, for example, that just doesn't go away or ameliorate. So what, what we can say is, you know, there is some evidence uh, to suggest that, but you're quite right. While the clinical manifestations uh, have some, you know, shared some similarity, of course, the core ones are the fatigue for six months or more, although I believe some people are starting to say three months or more, but let's say three to six months or longer. And the big one that we've seen is, of course, what's called payback. So, you know, it's also technically called post-exertional malaise or lethargy. People with those things, you know, as a, as a centrepiece of symptoms can then have a variety of other symptoms around that. Some people might have more muscle pain, some more neurological symptoms, other more gut symptoms or some combination. And we're interested actually trying to sift through that a bit better and try and make, you know, I suppose some better support rules or clinical decision-making rules around, you know, what to really look for. So you've got all that. And of course, as you suggest, that lends itself to what we call a different etiology. So it might manifest in a certain way clinically, but what kicks that off initially in, in a way that we can't see, that is a virus or whatever, I'm sure is quite diverse. And then, of course, you've got controversy about what to do to treat people once you've identified that they have ME-CFS. As far as I know, and I should, should say that I'm a, a clinical scientist, I'm not actually a, a medical practitioner, so I don't treat, I'm very involved in the diagnostic side of it. But from what I can glean, well, there are recommendations currently uh, involving graded exercise therapy and uh, CBT, but the evidence, from my reading of it anyway, seems to be growing in terms of saying that's not effective for the majority of people. I believe there has been some evidence say that for a small subpopulation it might help, but generally it's either no effect or it can actually be more harmful. So people are saying, look, this isn't good enough, we've got to think differently. And beyond that, there are anecdotally guidelines, well, sorry, not guidelines, but anecdotally stories that suggest that for some patients, you know, some sort of multivitamin complex or you know, some uh, low-dose beta blocker or, you know, some other range of things, you know, do help or taking your cults, you know, restoring your gut microbiota. There's probably quite a bit of self-medicating going on, but we don't actually have really uh, beyond the exercise therapies and things which are, are falling into disrepute at some level. 
we don't really have anything else beyond what maybe an individual uh, medical practitioner or even a patient might decide to do to help with the symptoms. That was part one of my talks with Brett Libri, Associate Professor at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Australian National University about ME, CFS and fibromyalgia. Listen next week for part two. You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you, and you too. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone, or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two NVR in Nambucca Valley, three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7 LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.